welcome to season two of the B Major podcast. I am Noah Aronson. I'm a composer, songwriter, performer, teacher, intentional mover, and curious spiritual explorer. This season, you'll hear a continuation of my personal exploration of the meeting points of creativity and wellness, as well as pre-recorded and live interviews I conducted with dynamic movement practitioners, spiritual leaders, authors, coaches, athletes, professors, and fellow creatives doing meaningful work in their respective fields. All of the music that you'll hear throughout the podcast are examples of my own creative expressions that I created right here from my studio in Brooklyn, New York. My hope is to inspire and encourage you to step more firmly onto your path and to remind you that you too can be major. Whatever the question, love is the answer. Welcome back, B Major friends. Today's episode is once again about the importance of developing techniques for dropping into the body. I can't tell you how often this wisdom is coming up for me on a daily basis and how useful it is both on a mental health level but also on the level of tapping into my creativity. In my interview with Annette Dubreuil, she discusses her work as a focusing coach. And what she means by that is that she helps people develop practices for deep body listening. Whatever the question, love is the answer. talk a lot about dance and other movement meditation practices that I've enjoyed and I've experienced on this podcast. And while I love them, one thing that came up in my interview with Annette was the idea that sometimes these dance practices can almost be too much stimulation at one time and may actually be confusing for some people with how much is happening in the body all at once. So her focusing practice is about micro movements and paying attention to the smaller details and then examining those sensations so that we can better understand their meaning. Another interesting point that came out of my conversation with Annette, which really resonated with me, was about how the more we build up our armor to protect our egos and our identities, the harder it is for us to tap into our creativity. This may be one reason why children who haven't yet fully developed their egos are far more creative than we are as adults. As I've been navigating through my own mental health journeys over the last few months, I feel that this concept really resonates for me. 
that the more I do to try to protect and pretend like nothing is wrong or protect my ego from being bruised or punctured, the harder it is for me to tap into my creative expression. But once again, I find that the wisdom that I've learned since starting this podcast last year holds true, that creativity leads to wellness and wellness leads to creativity. So when I allow myself to start tapping into my creativity, it actually helps soften some of the armor around my identity and vice versa. When I employ some activities that help soften the armor, like journaling or various different meditation practices, it allows me to tap more into my inner child, to my childlike sense of wonder, and enjoy the free-flowing creative expression. Before my interview with Annette, she actually led us in a brief breath practice uh, to help us both get grounded. So let's follow her lead today for our moment of practice. Okay, so we're gonna breathe in through our nose and hold for seven. And breathe out through your mouth for eight. In. Hold. Breathe out. Maybe one more. Hold. And out. So I'm speaking today with Annette Dubreuil, who is a focusing teacher, and she creates practices to listen to our inner knowing and create flourishing people and planet. She is a teacher, a coach, a practitioner, offering wonderful ways to experience embodied creativity. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Welcome. Thank you, Noah. I'm so happy to be here. So many of the people on this podcast series have had their own personal journeys that led them to leave a more traditional path and refocus their life's work in this field of wellness and creativity. So I'd love to start by you just sharing a little bit about your journey and what led you to be doing the work that you're doing today. Sure, happy to. Uh, so I usually start this story with where I grew up because I grew up in Northern Ontario. Um, on fairly close to Lake Superior, one of the five Great Lakes, and spent a lot of time in nature. And so when it was time to decide where to go to school, I was really drawn to environmental programs, but I was also drawn to business programs. And I ended up finding one um, that did both. So go and do a Bachelor of Science in Environmental Science and go, oh, we're really messing up the planet. Hmm. And so <laughs> then there was sparked in me uh, a desire to help organizations change because it was like clear that um i mean of course more science is needed and, and but that wasn't my calling my calling was to help the organizations change mm -hmm. and so then i did an mba and i did it in sustainability and nonprofits and 
was struck that there was all this research. There were all these people in organizational behavior creating tools about how to help organizations and teams change. And it seemed like the organizations, um, a lot of organizations weren't really using them. There were new organizations popping up that would have these more mission-oriented um, strategies. And, and it wasn't something that was kind of in the mainstream. And it, quite frankly, is still not, right? Like we, where there's more and more now with ESG and, and things. But so, so I kind of um, took a bit of a detour and now it feels like, because I knew I have wanted to change organizations, but then I found myself um, working with a lot of academics. I, I worked at research centers in two Canadian universities on projects that were related to sustainability and climate change, but I was doing administration work. I was doing communications work. Um, and so I was helping organizations change, but kind of a couple steps removed, if you will, right? We were like my last job at the Ecofiscal Commission, we were promoting pollution pricing as a policy tool. So we were helping governments change and helping governments change organizations. So I was like a couple steps removed from the people and the people doing the changing, if you will. And along that path, um, was seen a therapist for a while. I had, was going through a break, breakup and needing some help. Mm -hmm. And this therapist, my, who became my focusing teacher, her name is Jan Winhall. She at one point said, Annette, you need to come to focusing group. And I was like, what's focusing? <laughs> and I uh, went to the group and learned what focusing is. And I'll tell you about that in a sec. But what happened was I was completely drawn to it. And I was like, I need to learn how to teach this practice. Mm. And to finish my story, it didn't make any sense for years. I was like, I'm all about the environment and you know the planet. I wasn't as into social justice as I am now more and more. And then there was this like focusing practice, which was really about deep body listening. Um, it was more about personal development and closer to psychology and, you know, really close to therapy. It came out of research and therapy. So it, like it, there was some cognitive dissonance for a while. I was like, why, why am I wanting to do both? And it finally made sense eventually. Cause I was like, oh, teaching. And when we learned focusing, we're teaching people to listen to their body wisdom, which includes their heart centered you know, heart intelligence includes their intuition broadly. And from those places in our nervous system, from those parts of us, we make different decisions. We can be kinder. We can be more creative. Mm. We're more confident and courageous. All kinds of good things happen um, when we're more embodied. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's how I came to be like, oh, so that's how I'm going to help organizations change. So I'm going to teach people focusing. I'm going to teach people to be better at change agents, ultimately. It's, uh, it's so important. Um, there are so many things pulling our attention away. There's so many things that are trying to, to uh, ask for our attention. Uh, and, and we um, get, get, get trapped in that. And it's very easy to get distracted. Um, I, I've never heard of a focusing teacher before. It's I've heard of people who help people with ADHD or help people get organized or help people, um, you know, stay on track with their um, their their goals. Coaches, uh, mm. but I've never really heard of a focusing teacher. Can you speak a little bit more about like what that work is? Yeah. So when we say the word focusing, we mean it in the sense of if you had a pair of binoculars and you were bringing something into focus you would be turning the, the little thing in the middle, I don't know what it's called, to bring it, make it clear, right? So 
it's kind of about getting the right distance from something. If if we're working with something in the body and it's too close, then we become the emotion. We can be flooded. We are, you know, triggered. And if we're too far from something, then we can't work with it. That's more like dissociation, numbing, like ah. staying away from it. And so focusing really is a practice of being with something in us at the right distance so that we can keep it company and have a dialogue with it. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the way that I talk about that is um, bringing light of awareness. We bring the mm. light. We, we, we bring things to the surface in either therapy or breath work or in a focusing session uh, that we, we bring it up to the surface so that we can bring the light of our awareness to that thing because that will help it heal and help it shrink a little bit so that when it goes back down into the subconscious where it likes to live, uh, it's a little bit smaller and it has a little bit less uh, power over us in our conscious state. Yeah, beautifully said. I love that. Hmm. Hmm. So it's interesting, you, you talk a lot about listening and that listening is a big part of your, your practice. And I just think it's, it's interesting. How do, you, how do you train someone to be a listener? Doesn't that require a lot of talking? <laughs> yeah, so, so that's the one thing that's different about focusing practice than some of those other methodologies like meditation and mindfulness practice yoga. Although those practices are often done in groups, we're kind of you know, alone together, <laughs> yeah. or we're together and we're alone, we're, we're with our own process. And certainly focusing practice can be done on its own. Uh, and actually that when I do practice meditation, I'll often go into a focusing practice, I notice something that comes up and I stay with it. However, uh, focusing practice is best done with partner with a listening partner. And yeah. so it's a partnership practice. It's uh, similar to a, a, like a heart to heart talk. But normally what happens is we take turns. And so when I'm focusing, my listener is, uh, they're not bringing in any opinion or advice or anything like that. What they're doing is saying my words back to me or just holding space silently. Um, they, when they're saying words back, they're really especially saying back feeling words. Mm. And they're helping me get closer to whatever's ar- arisen in me. And we call that thing, we have a special word for it. We call it the felt sense. Because what we're paying attention to, while it's primarily physical sensations, there's also an emotional components, new thoughts arise from it. And we can also go back to memory. So there's uh, Eugene Genlin, who's the creator of Focusing. He, he created this term, the felt sense, to point people to this thing in us that forms. So um, it's lovely you talked about the unconscious. So often maybe, you know, say you're angry about something. You might be aware that you're angry. You might be aware that you're holding your hands and fists, but maybe you're not aware about why. Mm. So focusing practice would allow you to um, sink into your body and have something form that the, the meaning, the, the knowledge about what that's all about would come. Mm-hmm. And it would primarily come first physically, more, more sensations would come first. And then from there, uh, knowledge about what it's all about, why it matters to you comes, what's the worst about it can come. And, and as that information comes, that felt sense shifts. So we call that a felt shift. So sometimes what happens is um, it gets more intense or, or less intense, or it'll move places in the body. And so we're kind of on a journey in the body. And the body is basically saying, you know, 
when you get the right words or the right symbolization, because sometimes we use metaphors or images or some other way of articulating what we're sensing. And when we get something that matches, when there's a resonance, when it's the same, um, which relates to music, um, then the body goes, yeah, you got that. And it, that's why it disappears, but then it'll, it'll give you the next step. So maybe I was in my belly and now I'm in my throat. So the next step, when I get the right word or the, the, the symbolization, it, it, it just, it's carrying you forward. Um, and, and healing is happening in that process. Yeah. So the listening is helping us stay with that felt sense in a deeper way with, with that person, because just like any other practice, uh, you know, if you have a personal trainer, you're going to do the 30 minute or the whatever session you've booked with your personal trainer, you're going to do the whole thing. So that happens with focusing, like the partner helps you stay in longer and go deeper. And there's a beautiful thing about co-regulations that that's happening there too. There's safety created by being with those tough things that are coming up. Because very often, um, something that we're doing in focusing is going to be related to some sort of trauma or some sort of, you know, difficult situation that having the person listening is creating some safety. Hmm. And, and the listening can do a couple things. It validates us because we're hearing our, our words back. Sometimes we hear our words back and then we go, oh, it's not quite right. So we can hear that we weren't quite on the mark. You know, we're close to the bullseye, but we're it's not quite the right um, uh, matching thing. So we keep going to, till it feels just right and it shifts. And, and there's also in group settings, the listening and the hearing of the stories is very healing from a common humanity perspective of knowing I'm not the only one. Mm. So then there, there's applications in, in, in larger settings as well where listening can be helpful. It, it seems to me that, um the moment of anger is already is already too late to to start the practice in that moment and i mean because you're because you're overcome already with with that 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 emotion uh, i imagine it takes a, a fair amount of practice to be able to employ some of these embodied techniques so that you so that you could get to the point when when you are noticing that you're experiencing anger and, and actually are able to do this practice well what actually I would say is that focusing practice is a really good tool for problem solving why you got anger and unpacking why does the what what just happened that triggered me to create the anger. And then once I can understand that once it's not a black box, I can see it coming, or I can heal some of the trauma that's related to that, so that when that happens again, I can be more of me in my um, in the part of my nervous system, which is calm and connected. And I, I have more resources mm -hmm. to to not be as triggered. And it's it's iterative, right? Like these things don't. It's not it's, usually it's not like a, a switch flipping. It's like over time we uh, notice sooner. So maybe right now you get triggered and you realize afterwards what happened, and then you get to the point where you're about to say something and you can pause, right. and then and then eventually you get to the point where. You can see what's happening and you're like, oh yeah, that's that thing. And normally I would be reacting right now and right now I'm not reacting. So it's, it takes time. Yeah. Um, but the practice isn't about, um, well, it is about creating a little bit of space. And if you can, then going inside in the moment and, and noticing. And, and that, that definitely is a more advanced uh, yeah. application of the practice to do it in real life, not just uh, 
you know, in these moments of but these focusing sessions are really similar to therapy sessions where you're kind of, you're pulling something up and you're saying, okay, let's look, let's examine what just happened yesterday or last week in that moment. And let's just, um, so you're asking actually people to pull that emotion up or you're asking people to kind of just pull the story up. We're really letting the body guide us. So the therapy session, the therapist is kind of helping you guide along the way. In a focusing session, we're just following the felt sense as it shifts. Yeah. Um, there's certainly certain questions that we can help, like intuitively know how to guide somebody. We learn that over time. And, um, but we're really always going back to the body, the physical sensations, because they, they are always the first thing. First, there's something different. And then what, as we describe it, then we shift. I'm curious how breath and movement uh, work their way into this practice. Yeah, yeah. So breath work is often used at the beginning of the practice. We, um, what Gene did is he created six steps to, to point people how to be in the body in this way. And they, um, while you can talk about them chronologically, it's more like a dance um, that you can apply the steps any at any point. But really to begin the practice, we need to be, in that safe and connected part of our nervous system, uh, which is uh, also called the ventral vagal or the ventral part of our um, parasympathetic nervous system. And so breath work is a way to do that, to get calm in, in the body. We also can use body scans. The other way to do it is with um, a practice we call clearing a space, which is where we notice what's in the way of feeling okay. And we put it beside us. We visualize just for a moment kind of like if you were clearing a desk, you might pile up all the papers so we can pile up our issues beside us or we can put them in a box and put them on a shelf and just just for a little while, create a space inside us to 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 then be able to do some work. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Sounds like uh, something I would love to experience at some point going to one of those sessions because it's it really is fascinating. I. I've been speaking to um, some people who do creative expressive arts therapy for trauma. Um, and it seems what you were saying that, you know, in order to enter into the work, you have to help people first get to this calm, uh, this calmer state. Um, and uh, they were saying that they use creativity practices uh, to help people get there. Uh, and so you're saying that you, that this, this focusing practices uses breath work in order to get there. Breathwork or body scan. Um, we we typically don't use movement, although there is an, a branch of focusing called whole body focusing, which does use movement and start standing up. Um, there's, there, I think there's a whole spectrum of ways you can do it. And, you know, I think of um, the other practice that I teach, which is called um, social presencing theater, which comes from Theory U and Otto Sharmer's work and Arowana Hayat. I want to say Hayashi, I'm butchering her name. Um, and uh, and that's a, an embodied movement practice where the, the information comes through the movement. Mm. And so the, the, when we talk about symbolization in focusing practice, we're typically talking about words or images and metaphors, but sometimes they are gestures. And we do notice like if you suddenly are more open or if you suddenly collapse, we do notice that and we reflect that. Mm. Yeah. It's just so fascinating. There's so many different modalities that are all trying to get to the same the, the same thing. It's just I, I find this this conversation fascinating. I find it all um, just there's so many people doing such amazing work in this field. Um, yeah. 
You, you mentioned earlier that you have a whole community of people who are focusing on focusing. Uh, can you talk <laughs> a little bit about uh, some of the other folks in this field that you're learning from and you're doing work together with? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mentioned Jan Winhall, who is the um, master, you could call her a master focusing teacher in the, in the focusing community, we call that her a coordinator. Uh, and her community is called Focusing on Board and it's here in Toronto. And what Jan's done is, um, you know, really created a community of teachers who are coming together and providing programming. And, um, you know, now with COVID, it's a lot different, but we used to, she used to have groups in her house. So it would be really lovely to be in person and um, learning, focusing together. The, yeah. the other thing that Jan is um, going to be known for, I would say, maybe <laughs> she's known in the focusing community. She just published a book um, called Treating Trauma and Addiction with a Felt Sense Polyvagal Model. Yeah. And this is a huge, um, I think, advance in combining the understanding of the nervous system and what focusing is doing to help with that. Mm. And so, um, in polyvagal theory, we know that the nervous system is helping us stay safe. It's 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 automatically paying attention. Uh, Steve Porges calls that neuroception, whether we feel safe or not, and you know is activating our fight flight response if if there's something there that we need to respond to, and uh, and then there, and then there's also the shutdown response, which is if we can't fight or flee, then you know we we. Um, we fold, we, we collapse, we, we numb or dissociate. And uh, Jan's addition is seeing that what addiction and for everybody, bad habits, um, what, the, what the nervous system is doing is we're shifting from that fight flight over energized place to a numbing shutdown place or vice versa. And Westerners do that. You know, most of us do that every day. We wake up too tired and we get a coffee and the caffeine jolts us and gets us more active. And then at the end of the day, a glass of wine or maybe a beer, and then we you know, have to calm ourselves down. And so, or we use other behaviors. We watch, we binge watch television, we emotionally eat, we shop, we play video games, et cetera. So um, all of those behaviors are pointing to how we are coping, how we are regulating ourselves with substances rather than embodied practices like music, like dance, like breath work and connection with people. Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, even just recording uh, these podcasts and, and speaking with you, uh, it helps bring me into my body and into the moment and uh, that you're right, that just connection and, uh, and having, uh, I love that you were saying that before that the practice is about is a partnership practice. It's not a solo practice. It's not something we can do on our own. It actually requires us to be in like uh, in pairs and wit and being witnessed. At least mm. that, one, that sounds like it was one form of the practice, which I think is really fascinating. I, I think when people learn to do it that way, they often prefer doing it that way. There's certainly exceptions. There are certain people who just are happy to do it on their own. Um, and it's, and it really is, um, generally speaking, I think deepened uh, by doing it on our own. We want to be seen so much, you know. So often, we we want to we want to see ourselves, and we're scared to see ourselves because 
those creative parts of us um, that we lost growing up, we had, we had to do that to keep ourselves safe. There was something in our environment, whether it was with our, you know, our nuclear family or um, friends at school or society at large, right? Like I was struck by listening to the podcast, um, Renee Brown interviewed Oprah and Dr. Perry on their new book. And he was talking about how the brain scans now show that uh, trauma from racism has the same impact on the brain as a big T trauma. So it's like the, the environment can really affect us over time. Hmm. No, it's just, it's fascinating, fascinating work. You talked about uh, creativity in our bodies. Right. Um, yeah, can you talk a little bit more about what you meant by that? Like, you, I mean, I know that, you know, children are, are seen to have access to uh, more free flowing access to creativity. And then when we become adults, we become more logical and reasoned and we, some, some of us lose our connection to creativity. So where does creativity live in the body and according to the kind of this focusing technique? Yeah. Well, and it, that, that, that we lose that creativity is really well demonstrated by a NASA study where they, they interviewed kindergarten kids and 98% of the kids were creative geniuses. Wow. And then they, they followed those kids um, twice. And I think it like it dropped to 30% or, and, and then they did that same study with adults and it was 2%. And it was like, so it was like, where does the creativity go? And uh, I was, I did an interview with a, a man named Tony Fredericks, who's a, who wrote a book called Fizzle to Sizzle, which is a, like a, about uh, how to get over our creative blocks. Uh, and, uh, and he was talking about that, it, that the creativity kind of gets beaten out of us went through through school and standardized testing that um so much of the systems that we're placed into are actually getting us to, to think the exact opposite way of creativity yeah so for me i know what some of what happens is we become we have these protective parts our personality develops to to you know armor ourselves up to keep us safe and that work of armoring takes away from creativity we we can go too much into uh, our amygdala being overreactive, like being over on alert. And that's in that place of our nervous system, we're not creative, very rarely. You, you, you hear these odd stories of like, I remember there's a story of a group who were trying to outrun a forest fire. And one person did a fire so that the fire went around him and he survived, but every, everybody else is just running and then you know they die in the fire. Um, so it's rare in those fight flight situations to have creativity. Um, that part of our brain goes offline and it's just, it's just automatic instinct taking over. So um, I've been thinking a lot about intuition and how focusing practice is a way to tap into our intuition. So intuition is just knowing, right? Without rationally knowing. And um, a lot of that just comes through us. It comes through the body. And it seems like a lot of the creativity research is brain focused. So they'll notice which part of the brain is lighting up, but they don't look what, what, what's happening before that. There's a few anecdotes that we can know about that indicate that it's in the body. Um, there's a the, uh, person who invented the light bulb or actually who commercialized the light bulb. He didn't invite invent it. Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison, yeah. He would like take a nap with a metal uh -huh. ball in his hand. And so that just as he was falling asleep, the, the ball would drop and it would wake him up. And so he would be more like in the sleepy embodied state. And 
when we ask people like, where do you get your insights? And there's even some research on this. Very often it's like um, in the shower while doing dishes, it's while exercising, driving. It's when we are in a more relaxed state and more embodied, we're often moving um, and it's allowing the creativity to flow. And so where is it flowing? It's flowing through the body and it's coming up into an insight into the brain. And when you're moving, it's a lot mm. harder to notice that. So a lot of these movement practices that result in creativity, like we can see the correlation, but we don't see how it's happening. But in focusing practice, because you're not moving, because you're staying with the sensations and you're really seeing, oh, that thing changed in my body. And then I symbolize that. And now mm. I have this new idea. You can see that it was body first and then it came up into a thought. And in fact, so when we're, when we're symbolizing, what we're doing is we're, um, we're speaking out loud and that part of the brain that speaks out loud is the left brain. It's the, it's the part that labels and can put things into boxes. And, and so focusing practice is a way for the right brain to communicate. The right brain is more mapped to the body. So we're, we're hearing in some ways, the perspective of the right brain, but it's coming through the body and then it's being mm. symbolized with the left brain. Yeah. Um, I could talk to you all day. I think that this is a fascinating conversation. I just have one more question because uh, I think it's interesting. I mean, what you were saying before about that this is actually not in a a body practice. It's actually it's but it, it's it's not a body practice in the sense that it's not a movement practice, but it's a very much a body awareness practice. And I think that that is fascinating because it's almost. It, what I heard you saying is that sometimes the, our movement practices, it's almost like too much is going on. It's, it's distract, distracting uh, and overwhelming and actually like really slowing down into stillness. We actually notice the movement from within as opposed to bringing the movement from, from without and then trying to then see if we can access afterwards. Can you um, speak a little bit about uh, the difference between meditation and focusing? Um, I know that there's... Um, there's similarities in the way that they are practiced, but I know that you speak a little bit about the differences there. Yeah, sure. Um, and just about the movement part for me, I was never good at team sports, like eye hand coordination, like too many, too much things happen. So that's probably why for me, focusing practice works better. Um, for others, maybe the movement is much more um, helpful for them. So focusing in meditation, how are they different? So in meditation practice, generally speaking, not exclusively, you say hello and goodbye to something that comes. You know, we, we're, we're the main practice is a concentration practice, staying with a mantra, with a breath, a body scan, and the distractions, um, we're learning to notice them and to let them go. I'll attach them, yeah. Yeah. And that's, and, and then there's a whole practice of equanimity, right? Of not pushing or pulling to just letting the, the experience be what it is. And in focusing practice, the difference is, is that when something comes, we're, we're actually, we're inviting something to come where the main practice is the invitation, not something else. And what we're staying with is the felt sense, whatever comes and we're dialoguing it with it until, until it's done or until your time is done, <laughs> whatever, if you're doing a time practice. And so when something comes, we're like, hello, why are you here? What do you have to tell me? And we're really in dialogue with a part of ourselves. Hmm. And very often going back to, you know, we talked about armoring a little bit about these parts that come up to, to protect us. Well, some of those parts are 
quite quiet. Like they're operating, but they're operating like unconsciously. Mm. And, and in this dialogue practice, we're able to hear what they have to say, hear their concerns. And then the beautiful thing is that the adult part of us who is creative and confident and compassionate and all this can go, oh, I can take care of that in this way. And so we can let go of some of those other ways of being that were really helpful when we were little and we weren't, you know, able to be on our own. Uh, so in the difference between meditation and focusing to me is that focusing is a really good um, problem solving tool. It helps us unpack why is that pattern happening? Whereas meditation is often a tool to shift our state. You know, we use it to calm down. We use it to get centered and the practices of meditation. Like I did a Vipassana in 2015. Did I get insights? Yes. I was also sitting 11 hours a day. So from my MBA brain goes, it's really more efficient to sit for 10 minutes and have a focusing session and have something for a lot of the time, right? Like even like some, I hear people say they spend two hours meditating a day and that's a long time. And, um, so if you can do something and get the same results, or even maybe get the insights that carry you forward hmm. in 20 minute practice once a week, that might serve you better. Hmm. I feel it served me better. Yeah. It's been so fascinating and such, uh, such unique and interesting work that you're doing. Um, I'm just so honored that you were able to be here and spend time with us today. Uh, once again, we've been speaking with uh, Annette Dubreuil, uh, who is a focusing teacher uh, and is practicing uh, how do we tap into our inner knowing and uh, learn to listen a little bit more deeply to ourselves and to the planet. Uh, thank you so much for spending the time today, for, for taking your time to explain and to uh, elucidate more on this powerful work that you're doing. Thanks, Noah. That's our show. Thank you once again to Annette for coming on to the show and helping explain a little bit about her life and work. I hope you're finding these interviews and podcasts meaningful. If you have any suggestions on how I can improve on the format or on some people who you'd like to hear interviewed on this show, please feel free to reach out to me at info at If you're in the New York area during the summer of 2022, I will be hosting a three-part series in partnership with the 92nd Street Y called Inner Standing. This series will basically be a B-major podcast experience live in person with movement practitioners, communal singing, the revoice method, and live interviews with notable guests. Stay connected with me on social media to stay up to date about this series and other upcoming events. As always, I invite you to just start and begin the journey, if you haven't already, of reigniting your creativity. Do it just for yourself at first, as a self-care practice, and notice how simply by expressing your creativity more, you actually start to feel better as well. Because remember, we can all be happier, healthier, more creative. We can all be major. 
See you next time.